night gathering. How are we doing tonight? Doing good? Man, I hope so, because last week was good news, and this week is more good news. If you're just joining us, we are in our second week of our Ephesians series for this summer. We're walking through um, all six chapters of the book of Ephesians, and so if you're looking for something to read uh, in your quiet time or when you get up or before you go to bed, open to the book of Ephesians and read and sit and absorb what God has done for you. So last week, this is where we started. Uh, This is a letter um, to a church in uh, Ephesus. Paul is writing from a prison cell in Rome, and he's writing to a very specific group of people. He's not writing just to like the city of Ephesus. He's writing to the church, right? He starts the letters about the faithful believers in Christ. So he is writing to Christians. He's writing to encourage He's writing to, um, really just to encourage them. And what you see, and this is why we called our series Sit, Walk, Stand, is from beginning to end of Ephesians is what you see is Paul kind of helping this new believer stand and then walk and grow in their faith. It's a process. We're all in process. There's not one person in here who's in in the exact same place in their faith that someone else is. We're all in process. Some of you gave your life to Christ a long time ago when you were a kid, maybe middle school or even younger, and you've been pursuing the Lord. He's been growing you in your faith for years. Some of you may not be a Christian, and some of you may not even started a faith journey at all. It's just this is what you've always done. You go to church. You grew up Christian into a Christian family, into a Christian world, right? And you're born in Oklahoma, that's just kind of, you're kind of just born in, and you're Christian, right? And so we're all on a journey somewhere. And so what, what I love about Paul is whether he's talking about sitting, walking, or standing, it applies to every believer. And so one of the concepts that you're going to see throughout this entire series that we need to get used to real quick, because Paul gives us... No, no time, all right? He, right off the bat in chapter uh, one, and then again in chapter two, and then again in chapter three, like all through the book, you see Paul talk about two things interchangeably. Two realities that we kind of see like that's, those are, two, like he sees them as one. And that is the physical world that we live in and the spiritual world that we also live in. Like he says, we live, we are citizens of two worlds, the spiritual world and the real world. Right? This is what we talked about last week if you weren't here, just kind of that, that Zoom meeting mentality. Right? We live in a physical world. We're Zooming with our company that we're not currently at, spiritual world. But we have all the resources as a Christian that our company has to offer. And as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, what Paul says in chapter 1 is, listen, you are living here on this earth, but as a follower of Jesus, you are united with Christ. And you have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And so last week we we looked at the fact that God, before you were even a thought in anyone's head, decided, hey, I'm going to choose for myself a people to be my own. And those people I'm going to adopt into my family. They're going to become my children. And because they're my children, I'm going to redeem them from their slavery to sin, their sin nature. Not only am I going to redeem them from their sin, I'm going to forgive them for their sin. 
And not only that, I'm going to tell them my plan for the world. That everything will come under, uh, under Christ in the end. When you read Re Revelation, the book of Revelation, this is what you see. Chapter 21, Christ comes back and all things are made new under the authority of Christ. And not only am I going to tell you my plans, God says, I'm going to include you in my plan. You're not just chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and included. You are a part of the plan. And then he ends, we ended last week with this idea that he has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. That when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you and takes up residence within you. And so that's what we saw last week, this, this amazing letter that traveled around and it was simply to tell them what God has done. And they just need to sit and soak it in. You know, I had a couple conversations right after uh, the gathering last week, both that night and, and then the morning after, which is not, not untypical. And we talk about what, what was discussed and, and whatever. And, and the, the conversation that, keep, that kept coming up last week was this idea of the spiritual discipline of remembering. That what Paul is saying in Ephesians is remember whose you are. Not your name. Don't, like, it's not like, hey, don't forget your name. It's whose. Whose do you belong to? You are a child of God, adopted into his family, redeemed and forgiven and called and sealed. And so we talked about this idea of this, this biblical discipline, the best way I can think of it, this discipline to remember whose you are. And what that naturally does when you remember whose you are is that becomes your number one tool and weapon to fight sin. Because in that moment of temptation, it's easy to forget whose we are. It's easy to forget when, when the temptation's right in front of us to forget our spiritual identity. That yes, we are being tempted in the physical world, but spiritually in the heavenly realms, we have every spiritual benefit available to us, including son and daughtership to God. And in that moment of temptation, there is nothing that makes that temptation look more gross and disgusting and worthless than remembering whose you are. And I just love that was part of the outflow of what we talked about last week, this tangible tool to fight for our spiritual souls, and for our lives as Christians. And so tonight, we're going to answer a question, are you dead or alive? Because that's the question, and that's the idea that Paul talks about. Paul paints us a very real and vivid contrast between what we are by our nature and what we can become by grace. And so to do that, he's going to tell us what we were, what God has done, and who we are now. That's what we're going to do tonight. And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, like I said. If, you, if you're there, you may be saying, hey, but Andy, what about Ephesians 1, 15 through 23? Well, we're going to summarize this real quick. Paul says a prayer. He tells them who they are, what God has done, and then he prays for them. And he prays two specific things in that section. Number one, he prays that the, the Christians in Ephesus would know God better that God would give them the wisdom, that he would give them, their, the eyes of their heart would be enlightened to who God is, right? He's praying that they would grow, that they would grow in their faith, their knowledge of who God is. 
And then the second thing he prays for them is to know the blessings of the gospel better. That all the things that Paul just said, adopted, redeemed, chosen, forgiven, like that they would understand and own that and live it out. That it wouldn't just be a knowledge, but it would be a lived out reality. And so he prays for them. And so Paul's reminded us of the wonderful news and prayed for us to know God who has given us eternally secure blessings in Christ. And if that isn't enough, we, go to, we get to chapter two. Paul wants to make sure that we grasp the majesty of God and his activity by reminding us of who we are without Christ. To hammer home the glory, goodness, and power of God. All right, so we're gonna talk about whether we are dead or alive spiritually tonight. And to do that, all right, I'm just going to give you fair warning. Paul starts out down here. The first several verses we're going to read tonight are like, ugh. All right, but stick with us. Paul brings us out very quickly and wonderfully. All right? So let's read. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul starts off. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature under wrath, as the others were also. Told you. <laughs> it's like... He's like, hey, remember whose you are, right? Chapter one, let me pray for you that you would know God, but before we get too cocky or arrogant or stuck up or whatever, let's remind us of who we are without Christ. And that's my first point tonight, is that without Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead. We may be living, but spiritually without Christ, we're dead. There is no pulse. We were born this way, right? Physically, we were born, but when we were born, we were spiritually dead. And this is that, you've made the return, we have a sin nature, this is the same concept. That we were born in to a world that is tainted by sin. And so we're spiritually dead when we're born. Sure, you're cute, and you're cuddly, and everybody wants to hold you, until you spit up on them. But spiritually speaking, it's not as cute. Paul says we are dead. And I can prove this to you very easily. Because when we were born, and I've got five children at home that can bear witness to this, well, they won't bear witness, but my wife and I will, is that I never taught one of my children to lie. But they do. I never had to sit down and tell them and teach them how to be manipulative and use other people to get what they want. But they do. I never had to teach them that when they disobey mom or dad that they should go hide so they don't get caught. I didn't have to teach that. Like, you guys know this. Like, we, are, we, we naturally know how to do certain things that... Like, not just in Christianity, but culturally, we'd say that's not good. But we naturally know how to do it because we were born spiritually dead. We were born sinful. 
And so what does spiritual death look like? And Paul explains it in three very, very clear ways. In verses two and three, we lived according to the world, we lived according to Satan's ways, and we lived according to our sinful desires. You see, the spiritually dead follow their desires, and the spiritually dead live the way of the world. Proverbs 14, 12 puts it another way, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Like we wake up every day. I wake up every day thinking, I'm gonna do what I want. I want to do what I want. And who are you to tell me I can't do what I want? And so Paul says, we are spiritually dead because of our sinful desires that we follow. The world that we live in, we live that way. And the, the Lord, the, the God of this world, Satan, has influence over it. He throws out the bait, we take it. It's in, in, in the, this may be silly, but I think, it, I think it works really well. It's like zombies. You didn't think you were going to hear about zombies tonight, did you? But spiritually speaking, this is the closest thing I can think of. You see, they're dead, but somehow they're living. You see, that, you see them on TV and movies, they're wandering around see, like aimlessly, just looking for that next fix of, of whatever, flesh to eat so that they can survive. And then they do it and they, they keep wandering. They just consume and they consume. There, there's really no other reason they're doing anything other than just to follow their urge their desire to get that fix, to survive. And then the way they survive is to get another fix. And so in this way, we're not too dissimilar to zombies. Because like zombies, we become completely and totally controlled by focusing on our next fix. The question is, what's your fix? What has captured your heart that you're chasing? so that you can survive, because we survive, right? Some of you are like, I just can't wait to, I, I'm just, I, if I can just get to the end of the day, if I can just get out of here. Some of you, if I can just get to the weekend, okay, whew, deep breath, life is better. If I can just, if I can just survive until my next vacation, whew. But what happens at the end of every day? You go to sleep and then you go back to work. And what happens at the end of every vacation? It ends and you go back to life. Or maybe it's not a surviving, but it's this, this fixation that I've got to get promoted. I've got to get more. I have to get her attention. I've got to make sure she likes me. I can't stop thinking about him. I hope he notices me today. I'm so lonely. I'm so afraid. What if they don't like me? What if I get fired? What if this happens? What if that happens? You see, we're not too different than zombies sometimes. These fears, these anxieties, these desires, we get fixated on them. And we just try and get a fix to, to, to relieve it for a moment. Because ultimately, none of those things will last. And here's the crazy thought, like that whole list, right, a promotion at work, someone to to love you and to, and to live life with, to make a little bit more money. Like none of all, like these are not innately bad things. 
But when good things become ultimate things, they become bad things because they will not fulfill and they will not give life. They give the impression of life, right? You hear it in our world, go live your life. To have an experience that will end. To have a moment that will end, a meal that will end. And then you just go to the next thing. You plan another vacation and you look for a better job. So we do this. And in the end, whatever we feel, whatever we want, that's what moves us throughout the day. And so in some respects, we're spiritual zombies outside of Christ. But God says, no, that's not the life. That's the life for the dead. I have come to give you life and life to the full. The enemy comes to steal and to kill and destroy, and he does that by getting us fixated on things that cannot fulfill. He steals your life. And he steals your joy. And he kills the spirit within you because eventually you just realize what is life about? Everything I've chased is for naught. And then at the very end, if, this, if, it doesn't, if, if that's not bad enough of who we are without Christ, we're dead spiritually. In verse three, it ends with, apart from Christ, we are dead and condemned. We're dead. It says, and we were by nature children under wrath. It's judgment. Not only are we spiritually dead, but we're under the judgment of God. At this point, if I'm reading this letter in, the book, in, the, in Ephesus, I'm like, man, what is Paul doing? Chapter one was way better. But I think in order to really drive home the goodness of God, that he loves you and cares for you, he says, remember whose you are, but also remember who you are without Christ. It's not hopeful. It's a dead end. And then he turns a corner. All right? We're going to start going out of here, going out of the pit. Verse 4, maybe the two greatest words in the entire Bible, but God. <laughs> you are dead in your transgressions and sins. You are separated, no hope, under wrath and judgment, but God. Oh, this is so good. This is the breath of fresh air we're waiting for. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had, loved, he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us, through Jesus Christ. Guys, come on. Like that's, I mean, he's like, all right, this is, this is in chapter one, this is what God has already done for you. This, this is who you are without Christ. And now tell me, let me tell you again what God has done for you. But God. And I love how, this, how Paul unpacks this. Number one is you see that salvation is God's initiative, right? We were dead. Like, there's no pulse, no spiritual pulse. We're just, we're just chasing our desires. We are spiritual zombies. And it says, then, but God, who is rich in mercy. Remember last week we talked that he lavishes grace on us? Okay, here we go. So not only does he lavish grace 
God is wealthy beyond imagination in mercy. And why does he give mercy? Because of his great love for us. Guys, I don't know how you can read the first couple chapters of Ephesians and not be convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is for you. And he loves you. And he's calling you in not to control you, not to shame you, and not to embarrass you, but to love you. That's what I love about what Paul's doing here. Like he's like, hey, don't get it twisted here. It is not about you. It is about him. And he is good, and he is merciful, and he is gracious all towards you. And so what did he do? Why, so why did he act? Because of his great love and because of his great mercy. What did God do? Number one, he made us alive together with Christ. When you are dead, the only, only a resurrection can help you. Do you think about that for a second? When you're dead, only a resurrection can help you. And it says in, 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 in uh, chapter one, if you go back and look, it says that, that the Holy Spirit, the power of God, raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenlies. And then right here, it says, you were dead, but God made you alive in Christ, even though you were dead. He has resuscitated you. This past weekend, I can't imagine there's a ton of soccer fans in here, but there was a soccer game being played in Europe, like best of the best in the world. And one of the players on one of the teams literally dropped dead on the pitch, on the field. Just the, everything stopped. The guy just, I mean, he's running and just, bam, dead. He had a cardiac arrest. His heart stopped. And he was dead. Everybody came around him. The game stopped. The whole stadium was in a hush. And then the team doctor runs out, grabs a defibrillator, rubs them together, and And on the first hit, the dead came to life again. And that is you and I in Christ. That is what the Holy Spirit does the moment you put your faith in Jesus. He puts the defibrillator in it. A dead person has become alive in Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes into you and lives in you. And guys, think about this for a second. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that conquered sin and death, now resides in you as a follower of Jesus. That's, that's incredible. It just gets better and better and better. You were saved by grace, not because of your merit, not because you earned it, not because I earned it or I'm just a really good guy. It's all about God who loves you and who is rich in mercy and lavishes his grace upon you. And after he makes us alive, then he relocates us. Did you see this? He relocates us spiritually. All right, it says that he raised us up and seated us where did he seat us? He also raised us up with him and seated us with God in the heavens in Christ. This is the ultimate, you go to a thunder game, sit in the nosebleed, and someone says, no, no, you're not sitting up there. We're changing your seats. We're bringing you down courtside. 
Like you're not just sneaking in to the heavenly realms. You are seated with Christ. That is why you and I as Christians have access to all of chapter one, the spiritual blessings in Christ. Like we're not calling, hey, God, don't forget me. Can I get some of that forgiveness? No, you are with Christ. So our position with Christ or in Christ is with Christ. We're seated. Like that's why we say sit, walk, stand. The first week we just need to sit and listen. Now you need to realize as a Christian, you actually sit with Jesus. You are seated with him. You see, God doesn't lavish grace on you just to sit, put you on the outskirts. He says, no, what was once far away, I'm going to bring near. And so he made us alive with Christ. He relocated us and seated us with Christ. And see, this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. This is the difference. Because every other religion in the world tells you what you must do to get to God. And what Christianity does is tell us what God has done to bring you to him. Because he knows what is best for you is himself. Just like with my children, I know that when they're scared, when things are crazy, when there's tornado sirens going outside, the best thing that they could do is come be with me. Because I'm dad. And so God doesn't invite you in to manipulate you. God doesn't say, come follow me, give your life to Jesus and walk with me, surrender your life to me because he's got some sick, twisted, micromanaging itch that he's got to scratch. He knows what's best for you. And so he says, come, follow me. And this is why I'm a Christian, this right here, because of what God has done to bring me to him. Because at the end of the day, guys, like I know who I am. You don't. I do. I know what I've said. I know what I've thought. I know what I've done. I know what I've looked at. Like I know who I am. And if my salvation is dependent on my effort, I know for a fact I am screwed. Because I can't. I can't. But God said, because I love you and because I am rich in mercy and I want to lavish grace on you and I want to bring you in, I'm going to give my son for you because I know you can't do it. So I love the, the honesty of the Bible that says, there ain't nothing good here. I know what you need and I will provide that greatest need for you. And so I need a savior. And just because I know humanity, I know you need a savior. And so how does he do this? Verse eight. For you have saved, but you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not from work so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And my third point is that in Christ we go and live. Without Christ, we are spiritually dead. With Christ, we are spiritually alive. And in Christ, we go and live. And as we see, salvation comes from grace, unmerited favor. You and I did not deserve it. We cannot earn it. We're saved by grace 
through faith, trusting in him. You see, God, God is a giver, right? It says, this is God's gift. I don't know about you, but when I'm on my uh, birthday or on Christmas, I like to get gifts. I do. It's one of my love languages, how I receive love. I like gifts. Thoughtful gifts, not dollar store stuff, okay? They've thought about me. They know me. And they're like, oh, he's going to like, that's okay. Now we're talking. But isn't that what God's done? He knows you. And he's thought about you. In fact, he made you. And he said, I'm going to give you the very gift that I know you need. But here's the reality. It's not really a gift unless you take it and you open it and it becomes yours. Follow me here. That's why church attendance does not matter. Church activity does not matter when it comes to your salvation. It did not say that you are saved by attendance alone. It did not say that you are saved by your involvement in Christian-y things. You are not saved because you listen to Christian music. You are saved by grace through faith, and it is God's gift to you. Let's unwrap it, and let's put it on, and let's live it out. And then he continues. Not only is God a gift giver, he does it so that no one can boast. Like, he knew us, right? He knew us. He knows our human nature. That if we could, in any way, be a little bit better than somebody else spiritually, we will let them know. Like, he knew. He knew what we'd do. If we could in any way increase or improve our position in Christ by our efforts. Like, he knew. And so what did he do? He said, I'm going to completely take it out of your control so that you cannot boast. In fact, if you ever come, like there, there is no such thing as an arrogant Christian. Cannot happen. If you are, you may not be a Christian. You know why? Because you're, you're boasting about what you've done. And that is not the gospel. So you believe something other than the gospel. Right? When we get to heaven and God might ask, why should I let you in? If the first two words out of our mouth are, well, I, just stop right there. Nope. The first two words out of our mouth should be something to the effect of, well, Jesus loved me, hung on a cross to pay for my sin so that I could be with you. I got nothing. And so he gives us grace so that no one can boast. But because we were spiritually dead, but God, he raised us up and seated us with Christ. So what do we then do with this new position that we find ourselves in? Right? He, he, he continues on. For you've been saved by grace through faith. It is not for your, from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not from works so that you cannot brag about it, about how good you are. He said, for we are his workmanship. That means he is the one who put you together. He is the one that wired you the way you're wired. He's the one that made you an extrovert instead of an, an introvert. He, he gave you your wiring so that you're good at this, but maybe not so good at this. You're his workmanship. And so he has redeemed his own workmanship. And then he says, but now we live. First, we were dead without Christ. We are alive 
with Christ, and now we live in him. It is an active word. That is not just like a, hey, we're breathing, our heart's beating, we live. It is a, we live in him. The Greek here is that we literally walk in the works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. This is how we live, right? Paul's starting to turn a little bit of a corner here, going from sit to walk, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. But he starts this idea of like, hey, it's not a passive thing. Like, so all but one of my children thus far has played t-ball. And um, for those of you who will have children one day, which is probably most of you, I'm just warning you up front, there's going to be a couple years there of youth sports that are miserable, okay? It's just bad sports. It is not good. They are not good at it. There's a lot of runs because no one can catch the ball. It is like everybody hits it in the park homer. Like, it is just like, oh, my gosh, what time is it? Like, but t-ball is where we start, right? Why do we start with t-ball? Because we know they don't know what they're doing. And so what do these coaches do? They trot out a tee, and they put it on home plate. And then they put a ball right on top of it so that these little kids only have to do one thing. Swing the bat. And that ball will move. I'm not saying it's going anywhere. At worst case scenario, it falls off the tee because you hit the tee. Like, this is the concept here, right? This is the concept. For you are his workmanship created in Christ for what? Good works which God prepared ahead of time for you to do. You see, this is the exciting part of our faith as Christians. That it's, your salvation's not up to you. Your activity's not, it's t-ball time. Before you were ever a thought in anyone's mind, God set it up for you and said, all right, just swing away. Just swing away. We were saved to be sent all right? Your salvation is more than just for your salvation. It's to be sent to do good works that God has set up for you to do. He's put the ball on the tee. We've been saved to be sent, not to be passive and private. That's it. We've been saved to send. So, do you, so at this point, I have to ask this question. Do you have a boring faith? Like you're like, man, this faith in Jesus thing, it's, you know, I go to Sunday, maybe hit the gathering up once every six weeks, might, you know, say a prayer here and there. Like, it's just, it's just nothing real exciting about it. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I may offend some people, but here's the reality according to Ephesians chapter 2. You are walking in disobedience. He has set up for you good works to do. And some of us refuse to leave the dugout. We're too afraid. We're too intimidated. We care more about what people think of us than actually living out in obedience what God has set up for us to do. And so part of being saved is now walking in obedience. And guys, this is, again, this is where I say like our faith gets so exciting because I don't know what T is set up. I'm just gonna swing, see what happens. See where God's already working that he has placed in my vicinity and in my influence in my life, whether it's a neighbor or a coworker or a friend or a college buddy or whoever, that God has placed people in your life 
put the ball on the tee, swing. God's already working. He's already prepared it for you. And so <laughs> this is just incredible. Right? Look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. In Colossians 3.17, it says, and whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 1, Jesus himself says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. He's put the ball on the tee. It's in our job description to be ambassadors for Christ, to be a representative of Christ, to be a witness for Christ. It is our job, and it's the exciting part of our faith, is to step into that fear of other people, to step into that moment and see God move through you. He's set up works for you to do, good works. And so salvation is not just for you. It's for others. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life and life to the full. I don't know about y'all. I don't know what the Greek translation is, but I'm pretty sure it's not boring. Life to the full is not boring. It is exciting when we decide to step up, come out of the dugout, and get in the game. And so we might start asking ourselves, well, what does that mean for me in my life, in my sphere? Maybe that's a prayer we start praying. God, show me the T. Show me. Give me the strength. Give me the boldness. So in review, without Christ, we are spiritually dead. With Christ, we are spiritually alive. And in Christ, we go and we live. So what do we do with this? I just, I came up with a question. I was like, I don't know if, because this is still the sit series, right? We're in the sit part of the series. So I didn't want to give you like a list, like, all right, go do this, this, and this. But I have a question that I want to try and answer. How do you know if you are spiritually alive or dead? Because if we're reading this, and Paul's saying, hey, without Jesus, you are dead in your sins and transgressions. Like, there, there's no pulse. How do you know? How do you know if you're spiritually alive or dead? And I want to give a couple caveats before I finish up here. Number one is that God is not asking my opinion about you. Okay? He doesn't say, hey, Andy, what do you think about so-and-so? Do you think they're a follower? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. You can, you, could, you can fool me all day long. I don't know. This is between you and the Lord, okay? Secondly, I'm about to give you a list of five things. And this list of five things are simply biblical principles. It's like a filter to work through. It's like, all right, let's, let's ask ourselves some hard questions. Some hard but good questions to, to get our spiritual pulse. Is there a pulse? If so, is it weak? Is it strong? Is it intermittent? All right? So this is, this is a filter to consider. Because in 1 John 5.13, John writes, I write this whole book of 1 John to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So it is possible to know whether you are saved or not, whether you are spiritually dead or alive. And so what I don't want to do in the next few minutes, okay, with this so what, what I do not want to do is two things. One, 
I don't want to cause undue anxiety for the believer. I don't want to cause you to doubt your faith for no reason whatsoever. That's, that would not be good on my part. That's not good pastoring, is to keep you in this, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm, what if I die tonight driving home? Like, no, that's not what I want to do, okay? But on the flip side, what I also don't want to do is give false assurance to those who are spiritually dead. I don't want to tell those who are spiritually dead, hey, if you just come here, if you check off some boxes, you're good. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look back into Scripture very quickly and just pull out five things. This is not an exhaustive list, just five things to answer the question, how do you know if you're spiritually alive or dead? Number one, and this is where we all start. You're spiritually alive when you believe in Jesus for your salvation. I know it's simple. Right? It's, it, it's, it's Romans 5.1 and Romans 10.9. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is where it starts. And this is maybe where you're at. And you're like, yes, I've done that. And the other four things, you're like, oh, not so much. All right, great, we're in process. We're growing in our faith but it starts here. Do you believe? Not a knowledge thing, like this is the said faith versus saving faith. You hear me? I want, guys, I want this to be so helpful and so clear. Because I do think I lived a lot of my life with a said faith. I knew about Jesus, but I did not need Jesus. I didn't want Jesus, I wanted what I wanted. But I knew about Jesus. A said faith versus a saving faith. And it starts with believing in Jesus for our salvation. It is a I am a sinner and Jesus is my savior type of belief. Not Jesus is a savior and when I need him, I will call upon him because you don't know when you'll need to call. So number one, you believe in Jesus. Number two, you'll know you're spiritually alive or dead if there or if there is not fruit of Christ in your life? Has anything in your life changed since coming to faith in Christ? Has anything changed? Because according to scripture, at the moment of salvation, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells you. If I dropped a hot coal down the back of your shirt, we would see some change. We would. But you're telling me the spirit of the holy, mighty, almighty, omniscient God comes into your life and nothing changes? What? Can't be. So has anything changed? You have a new spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old is gone because the new is here. Change. Matthew 7, Jesus says, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. What is the fruit of your faith? Has anything changed when you came to Jesus? Or is it just a knowledge thing that you'll cash in if you get the opportunity to before we go? Number three. So first, you believe in Jesus. Second, there's a, is there fruit of Christ in your life, and then thirdly, the sign that you're spiritually alive is that you hate sin. 
Maybe another way to say it is you have a major problem with it when you, when you do it. You feel the conviction. Because guys, here, again, man, the Holy Spirit, if you can study anything, study the Holy Spirit. He is the power of God in you. But did you know that the Holy Spirit indwells you, right? He, come, he takes residence in your heart when you become a Christian. And he, one of his number one jobs is to convict the world of sin. And so if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, but we have no problem with sin, you may consider why that is. Why is that? Why is there no conviction? Why does it not feel odd to you to go back to your old self? Galatians 5, 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary, you see, the spirit and our flesh are, are at war. So which way are you warring? Are you playing with sin or are you battling and warring sin? Are we keeping around and watering it or are we uprooting it and getting it out? Colossians 3, 5, Paul has some serious words here. He says, put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So what do you think of sin in your life? Are you just like, man? Or is it, man, like, oh, did it again. God, oh, please help. Confess, repent. Which brings me to number four. You know you're alive spiritually if there's a lifestyle of repentance. Matthew 3, Jesus says this, prove by the way you live that you have repented, turn from your sins and turn to God. Did you hear that? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turn to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we are the descendants of Abraham. Guys, let me unpack that just really quickly. I know we're going long, but this is important stuff. Is that Jesus, Jesus himself is saying, prove, prove it by repenting. Prove your faith by turning from sin to God. And then he says, but don't say this. Nah, no big deal. I grew up in a Christian home. I'm good. That's what he's saying, because he said, tells them, he says, don't say to each other, we're safe. We are descendants of Abraham. You see, that makes no difference. Because Abraham doesn't bring a spiritual pulse. And so I think some of us, I know for me for a long time, I was like, I grew up, I grew up in a Christian family. I went to church. He's like, no, don't lean on that. Lean on Jesus. Don't lean on your family heritage decisions that other people made. Lean on Jesus for salvation. And we prove that by living a lifestyle of repentance. And then lastly, how do you know if you are spiritually alive? You have a confidence from the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 14 and 16, Paul writes, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, he testifies with you. Like our word alone is not enough. The spirit testifies. He's our seal, right? It's like if we go to court for speeding and we say, hey, I don't think I was speeding. I feel like I wasn't. 
judge ain't going to take that. He needs an authority to speak on the matter. And spiritually speaking, the Holy Spirit is the authority. He's the one that testifies with us to say he is a child. She is a child of God. And so what does the Spirit testify about you? Would the Holy Spirit testify with you to say, yes, she is a child of God. Yes, he is a child of God. And so, like I said, guys, these five things, this is not like, these are just five biblical principles that I see over and over that describe the life of a believer. You first, you believe, and then you bear fruit from that belief, and part of that fruit is making war on sin. And then when we do sin, which we will, we, we, we repent quickly. And then when we do those things, the Holy Spirit testifies and gives us a peace. It says, she's mine. And so I'm excited tonight because we have a story about what we want to show you as I close. A story of one of our leaders here at the gathering who has seen this happen in his life. You've heard how Paul has talked about this, and now you're going to get to hear a testimony um, from Preston about how God brought him from death to life. So turn your attention to the screens. As a child, I had this belief about God that if I thought the right thing in my head, that was enough to be a Christian but I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm Preston Tollers, I'm a physical therapist. I work for Physical Therapy Central and I'm from Moore, Oklahoma. So I probably have a similar story to a lot of um, people in, in church. I grew up in a family going to church on Sunday. We attended a, a Lutheran church every week. My kind of view growing up about God was that there was this guy named Jesus and that if I believe in him, I would die. and. I would go to heaven. So Jesus was someone who had lived a long time ago, and I thought he was a real person and the story was real, but it had no meaning in my life. On the outside, it seemed like I was um, a good kid, like I made straight A's, I didn't really get into trouble or anything. And so in my youth, I was introduced to pornography, and that's what really began my prodigal journey away from the Lord. For me, it was kind of this secret hidden sin when I was in college, I um, became really obsessed with my grades. And so I developed this, this sense of perfectionism and just needing to be perfect in everything. Like a 97 wasn't good enough for me, I needed 100. I developed this really severe anxiety that became very crippling that turned into this major depression where I just lost hope and didn't want to get out of bed and felt very just hopeless in, in my life. And I started going to counseling and was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and major depression disorder and um, started getting treatment for that. I started going to undergrad at the time, getting involved in the party scene there and so drinking heavily on the weekends and that kind of became my sense of fulfillment and I just continued seeking and grasping for something that was going to satisfy and fulfill me and I, I couldn't find it everywhere I, I looked, and I tried it in um, grades in school, I tried it in sexual relationships and romantic relationships, friendships, drinking, um, nothing was giving me satisfaction. But I knew there was something out there and that there was some 
joy to be had and there was some greater purpose for why I was on this earth and living this life. I'd grown up going to church and I just thought I would kind of come back and start going again. I was looking for a new church. I see a poster for the gathering. What I found when I came to this, this church and this community um, in the gathering was teaching about Jesus and Christianity that was very different from what I was accustomed to growing up. And it wasn't that the, the teaching of the Bible and about Jesus was different, but it was that I was now surrounded with people who were actually doing what the Bible said and were living out Christianity in their daily life. And they acted like um, Jesus was a real person interacting with them on a daily basis. So God started becoming more of a, of a God that wanted to be in relationship with me. And he was offering the things that I had been searching for, and he became that treasure for me. He became um, exactly what I was always looking for. And God was speaking to me through his people that he still loved me, and he wanted a relationship with, with me, and he wanted to help me with my, my problems and to give me a purpose. Early on, I met with someone on a prayer team one night at the gathering, and I confessed my sin of pornography, and I was convicted at that time that it was actually destroying me, and I got plugged into a small group. There was someone who confessed the same struggle with pornography, and that was eye-opening for me because these were guys who actually wanted to follow the Lord, but they weren't doing it in a way that was legalistic or keeping them like chained down. They were experiencing freedom, and I, I wanted that. I wanted what they had, and I, I wanted to be free from it, and it seemed like Jesus was saying to me at that time that I could be free from it and it's something that I could be healed from. Healing has become a process that I've been going through for the last several years since I started going to crossings. I've been on this journey ever since then. And now what God has allowed me to do, um, just over a year ago, I was able to become a small group leader myself. And now I'm leading other guys through the same struggle that I, I've been going through and we're finding healing together. If you're watching this and you find yourself um, like I did where you're searching for something and you're grasping for something to satisfy you and you find yourself here, my hope is that you can find people like I did who will journey with you through what you're going through. You'll come to know that Jesus isn't just your savior, but he's also your Lord. And he didn't just save you so that when you die, you have a place to go, but you can actually be free from your struggles and everything that chains you down in this world and actually have freedom in this life now. My hope is that you are able to realize what I did and that's that there's a God that loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you now.